Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. You brief for, for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, again, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. So, so excited that you're here with us. Um, uh, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Uh, the gospel is the good news that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could be a part of his family. And so, um, so he gave his life paying for our sins, uh, removing the barrier that keeps us from God. Um, all of us are sinners. All of us mess up. And there's, there's no perfect person here. Um, we all need Jesus. And so we look to Jesus together who gives us hope. Um, secondly, the is community. Community is the, the truth that we were made for relationships. God created us to be in relationships with other people. And we believe that we change and grow the most in relationships centered around Jesus. And this is from people from all walks of life, all backgrounds coming together in this beautiful picture that we call the church. And then lastly, mission is uh, the idea that the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. We tell others about what Jesus has done for us and we live lives shaped by what Jesus has done for us so that our world can be a better place. A couple of announcements before we jump into the text this morning. Um, we are going to uh, be going to Canopy Lake Park in two weeks, two weeks from yesterday. Um, there is a $5 per ticket discount if you buy the ticket through us. So we will discount that ticket for you. Uh, and so for my family, that's like, a, that's a whole trip to McDonald's. So let's let's just discount that ticket and go ahead and do that. The deadline to sign up is August 7th. So be sure to do that as fast as you can. If you're new with this, man, c- come hang out and enjoy the park with us that day. Um, it's kind of a quintessential New England experience. Uh, And then just something to keep on your uh, radar for late August, we're gonna be doing a back to school event uh, for Boston Housing Authority. And so if you wanna be a part of that, wanna volunteer for that, just keep that on your your, uh, radar. Sometime late August, we're still nailing down some of the details. Also, if you are a guest with us this morning, you may notice a connection card on your chair. Uh, We'd love for you to fill that out. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better, um, help connect you to what's going on here at City on a Hill. If you wanna save a tree, you can also go to coahforesthills.org slash connect. And we have a digital connection card uh, for that as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to be back in our series on the Apostles' Creed. We're beginning to round out this series. There are just three uh, sermons left in the series, including today. And, and so we've been moving from the idea of who God is to, to who we are. And so the first several weeks of the series was focused on God. So I, we talked about our belief in general and then believing in God the Father, God the Son, uh, God the Holy Spirit. We talked last week about the idea of being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so today, this is a, it's really kind of apropos that we're shifting toward how do we live live because as as God's people, our life is derived from who God is. Who we are and how we live flows from what who, who God is and what he has done. We exist because God is a creator. We are saved because God is a savior. We have new life because Jesus rose from the dead for us. And so today we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be the church? The next line in the Apostles' Creed says, uh, it's, I believe, and really you can put I believe before any of these statements, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. The church exists because of God. We exist for God to be God's people. Now, when you hear the word church, what do you imagine? What do you think of when you hear the word church? You might think of, of, of a building, You might think of a worship service. You might think of a time that we come together on Sundays. And that's not completely wrong, uh, but 2020 really put our definition of church to to the test. 
During 2020, during the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns we experienced, we really had to ask ourselves the question, are we still the church if we're not gathering in a particular place at a particular time? And for years, pastors have asked the question, what if all of this went away? What if the buildings went away? What if the worship services went away? What if uh, the singing went away and the ability to gather together freely went away? And sadly, last year we got to experience that question. What happens if the church can't get together? Does the church stop if we can't meet? And the answer to that question is both no and yes. No, because we are a people. Whether we're gathered together, our identity as the church does not change. And we did some incredible things in 2020. Uh, We served extensively through English High School and the Housing Authority and the YMCA. A lot of our members really were released to love and serve our neighbors and just be on mission to the people right around us. Um, So we we were, we we talked about how, you know, we're still gathering together. Our church began, if if you're new with us, we began last September, three out of four weeks meeting on Facebook Live. That is not in any church planning manual ever. That is not a best practice that just happened. Um, and so we talked about how it, we were, it's like we're building a fire with twigs and you had to get really close to that fire to feel any sort of warmth. And so we experienced and said, no, the church does not stop when we can't gather. But also I would say that the answer to that question is also yes, because the hardest part of the pandemic was the ability to not do this the ability not to get into each other's homes and share a meal and be eye to eye and knee to knee and be able to be face to face because the church is meant to gather physically because we are a people. First and foremost, the church is the people of God. The North Star Catechism question 62 says, what is the church? And the answer is the church is the people that God has made alive, called together, and sent on mission. Again, that is the people that God has made alive, called together, and sent on mission. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the idea of the church through two lenses. We're gonna look at it through a telescope, and we're gonna look at it through a microscope. The telescopic view, the big picture sky view is the idea of what it means to be the Catholic church. Little little C Catholic, we're gonna get to what that means in a minute. And then the microscopic view, when you really boil it down, is the communion of the saints. That's the local church. That's how what we're doing gathering here today. And we need to understand both. We need to understand both the universal church, this idea that we're connected, the Catholic church, we're connected across time with every believer who's ever existed. But we also need to understand what it means to be the local church, how we live out, the practically live out what it means to be God's people. And a great question that we need to continue to ask ourselves as a new church in this neighborhood, neighborhood is what kind of church do we wanna be? What kind of church does City on a Hill want to be? You know, I, I really believe in doctrine. I believe in, in serving. I believe, in, I believe teaching matters. But I really believe that possibly almost as as important as what we believe is how we live. The culture that we're trying to embody as a church and the drum that we keep banging from day one is we wanna build a gospel culture, a culture where people are loved like Jesus loves, a culture that is where we embody grace towards each other and the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat our neighbors flows, flows from who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And to build that kind of culture, it takes every person participating and perpetuating that culture. Our vision is for every person from every culture to experience the gospel. And that takes every person in this congregation applying that gospel to all of life. 
So let's take a look at that first lens. Let's take a look at what it means to be the universal church, the holy Catholic church. Now that phrasing Catholic in the, in the Apostles' Creed may throw you off. Maybe you grew up Catholic or you grew up in a more liturgical tradition and you went through the Apostles' Creed and you heard the word Catholic. We need to kind of differentiate between what this means and from the Roman Catholic church. This is like little C Catholic, not big C Catholic. Little C Catholic, the word literally means universal. So it's not saying that you have to be a part of the Roman Catholic Church to be a part of the true church. And one day we'll talk about the differences probably in a seminar, uh, the differences between Catholicism and Protestant, uh, being a Protestant. I'm a church history nut and buff, and I could probably sit here all day and talk to you about this, but we're gonna, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna subject you to that. But the word Catholic, little c, means universal. Some translations of the Apostles' Creed actually use the phrase universal instead of Catholic. What this means is that the church in one sense is all Christians across all time and all places. It means all who've been made alive in Christ, not just the, the people who made a profession of faith, but those who, whose hearts have been made new and who make it to the end of, the life, of their life, trusting and longing after Jesus. This means all Christians all over the world. It means that right now, across the world, there are Christians in other countries, in places like Asia and Africa and Australia, here across the Americas, who have the same hope that we have in Jesus. And we are united as the universal church. We're united together. There's people across all times. There are people across all, all over the last 2,000 years and hundreds of years who have trusted in faith in Jesus. And we are a part of this family with together people from every ethnicity and background and temperament. And one day we're gonna to be together with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're gonna look up and see this wild family reunion with some crazy looking people who dress differently than us and look differently than us and think differently than us. And we're gonna see this beautiful tapestry and mosaic of what the universal church is gonna look like. Have you ever been to a family reunion and go, oh my goodness, I'm related to that person. There's something that connects you. Even though you don't know each other, you're still connected by this family line. We are connected by the family line of Jesus being brought into God's family together. Now, I do wanna make a distinction here. Um, we believe every person is made in God's image. Every person is made in God's image with inherent value, worth, and dignity, meaning that God created them for a purpose, to be known, to be loved, and that God's desire is for every person to be a part of God's family. But currently at this moment, not every person is a part of God's family. Now, a lot of people will say, look, we're all God's children. I, I would disagree with that statement because to be a child of God means that you're in right relationship with God. You have entered into God's family by the means that God provides for you to be a part of that family. And so Galatians 3 says that we have become sons. And that word son, by the way, is an inheritance term. It's not, ladies, it's not keeping you out of the family. But back then, the idea of a son was someone who the firstborn son would inherit all things. We have inherited sons and daughters by faith being brought into God's family. You become a part of God's family by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And Galatians 4 says that we enter as children being adopted through redemption, meaning that because of what Jesus did in our place, we get his standing. So that song we sung a minute ago about I know who I am, our identity is rooted in Christ, that Christ's right standing, not only his obedience, but his sonship is given to us when we trust him through faith. And this is not an exclusive family. This is an incredibly inclusive family, meaning that anybody can get in on that. 
Anybody who's willing to humble themselves and trust Jesus can enter into right relationship with God. And we see the way that this is, this is worked out in Romans chapter 12, verse one, that Paul makes this appeal to brothers. Again, brothers is the literal translation. The sense of this is brothers and sisters. He's addressing the church as a family. This is a broad address. And he says, brothers, by the mercies of God, you have become a part of God's family by his mercy. You can reach out to him and confess your sins and believe in Christ because of God's mercy that God would give his very own son in your place. What this means is that you don't get into the family by birth, you're adopted or chosen into that family. You don't get in by your own effort or, or, or by your rule keeping. You don't do it by keeping the standard. You are able to enter into that family by the mercies of God. And so what are those mercies? Well, there's a little word in there, the word therefore. The word therefore, I'm gonna say this a million times so you get it, the word therefore is there's a reason that it's therefore. What it means is it connects what's being said to what was just said before this. And sometimes that's connecting just maybe the word before it or the paragraph before it. We actually believe that that word therefore connects the first 11 chapters of Romans to this very promise right here. Romans chapter one, that every single one of us knows that there is a God who revealed himself through, through nature. Therefore, we owe our lives to that God. Yet Romans chapter two says that God is patient with us and his kindness would lead us to repentance. Romans three, knowing we cannot meet the standard, Jesus meets the standard for us. Romans four, we have a God who is a promise keeper. Romans five, we have a God who, while we were still yet sinners, died for us. Romans six says that we are no longer slaves. Romans seven says that we've been delivered, that God delivers us from sin that we cannot escape. Romans eight says that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans nine, that we've been chosen into God's family. Romans 10, that he has made this pathway available to all. And Romans 11, that every ethnicity under the sun can be a part of God's family. Therefore, by the mercies of God, brothers and sisters. It's an appropriate place to say amen. amen. Okay. Anybody can get in on that. You have to receive that by trust, by faith in what Christ has done. And because of this, Paul calls for us to live a different type of life. He makes an appeal and he appeals to us as the church. And it's right there in our name. The, the word church is a, is a Greek word, ekklesia. It's two words, ek and, and kaleo, ek meaning out of. Kaleo means to be called. So we are called out of the world. We're called to live differently. It says here to be a holy people. We're called to be other, to be different. We're called to be, to be countercultural. If you, and this is a different type of counterculture than we, than we see in our country. In fact, if you look at the history of counterculture in America, it always becomes the culture. It always ends up being commercialized. So you look at like punk rock in the 70s. Compare punk rock in the 70s to punk rock in like 2003. Punk rock in the 70s was like truly on the edge. Punk rock in 2003 was cookie cutter. It was, you know, it was the big labels were taking these independent artists. Like it became the culture. Being a Christian and being counterculture is constantly looking at the world around us in light of how God has called us to live and who God has called us to be. It says here, do not be conformed to this world, verse two, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 
commitment to not just simply go with the flow of the world around us, but to consistently resist. It's almost like canoeing a paddle upstream. We're constantly trying to not conform to the world, but to live differently, to live counterculturally. So what does this countercultural life look like? We see there's this call to be a living sacrifice. In other words, we need to be wholeheartedly countercultural. A living sacrifice is a paradox, right? Because what happens to sacrifices? They die. In the Old Testament, we would see this picture of the way you would pay for your sin is you would take an animal to the altar, to, to the priest. They would sacrifice that animal to pay for your sins in this bloody picture, this bloody sacrifice. But in the New Testament, we see that Jesus became the ultimate and final sacrifice to pay for our sins. And so we have this paradox of being a living sacrifice where we're not making a sacrifice for our sins, but the Bible says we make a sacrifice of praise, that we lay our lives down before Jesus in this never ending continual giving of ourselves saying, Lord, all I have and all I am is yours. Jesus said that we find our life by losing it. And we're called to continually do this because as one commentary said, it said that uh, the thing about a living sacrifice is it always wants to crawl off the altar. We're constantly having to bring our lives back to Jesus and for him to submit ourselves to him. And Paul says that this is an act of our spiritual worship. We do this as a spiritual worship. The word spiritual there can be understood as reasonable. And the word worship can be understood as service. In other words, this is the only legitimate response to understanding what Jesus has done for you. If you understand that Jesus gave his all for you, that he gave his very life for you, that he left the comforts of heaven to come down and take on flesh like us and to take all of our sin upon himself so that we could be get forgiven and receive his freedom, the only legitimate response is to give our all to him. Not to repay him, but to show gratitude. The question that underlies this passage is why wouldn't you wanna do that? Because when you see the value of who Jesus is and what he's done, of course you wanna give your life to him. In fact, Jesus told a parable in the gospels that really was talking about this very idea. He talked about the pearl of great price. A man found a pearl of great price and not only did he sell everything he owned to, to get the pearl, he, sold, he bought the field that the pearl was in because he wanted to make sure that that was his. We give everything to him. Living means a, our whole life, everything, because, because, because we tend to wanna to give parts of our life to the Lord. Lord, you can have this, but not that. Tony Evans says that what, to, what, to, what too many believers have done is put a portion of their time, talents, and treasures on God's altar and assumed it is enough. It is not. God wants all of you to be given to him. When you realize what Jesus has done for you, you're willing to give up control and say, all I have is yours. Not just our minds, not just our, our habits, but our bodies themselves. In other words, not just giving lip service to God, but how we live is changed by God. And we see this in the idea that a, that a life that is countercultural is a transformed life. It says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is a, again, a continual process that you're being transformed. The word for transformation is the word metamorphosis. We probably have all heard that phrase. It's the idea of, of, of a butterfly, of a worm turning into a, or a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's not, just a, it's, it's not just you becoming a better version of you, it's becoming a completely new you. And we see this process in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 
And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. How do we, how do we transform our lives? How do we live a life that's countercultural and different and exhibits the gospel? It's by beholding the glory of the Lord. It's by beholding and looking and staring at Jesus. And we do that primarily through looking at God's word. We do that when we come together on a Sunday morning. And this, uh, my wife, I love the way she describes this. She says, coming on Sunday morning is like someone's prepared a feast for you. It's like Sunday dinner. It's like mama or grandma and they're, they're making your favorite dishes and you're coming together and someone's serving this to you. But you've got to eat the rest of the week too, right? You got, you got to feed yourself on Tuesday. If you, if you can't cook, it's a hot dog in the microwave, but you still got to do it. It's the same thing with God's word. We come together on Sundays and we feast on God's word, but there's an invitation for us daily, continually to, to feast on, on Jesus through his word to come to his word daily and be reminded of his glory. And what happens is day by day, God begins to shape us and change us because what happens as we read the word is the spirit begins to change our hearts and change our minds and brings renewal in our minds so that we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It gives you this grid to be able to test all things in your life and understand whether this is something that is good. And when we talk about good, it's something that is the way that God designed it, acceptable and perfect in what gives God glory. All of us have maybe probably asked the question, what is God's will? What does God want for me? If, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been following him for a while, you may be asking the question, how do I give God glory with my life? And the word of God helps us understand that by giving us this grid to look at the world. And what begins to happen as we look to Jesus, we look at his face, is the rest of the world begins to make sense. It begins to put all things in their proper order. It gives us a way to evaluate our lives and make decisions. And what ultimately happens is it leads to our greatest joy because as God is glorified, we get joy. This is what it means to apply the gospel to everything in our lives. And so what it means is we take and look at how Jesus loved other people and let that form how we love others. We think about all the relationships in our lives and ask, how am I called to love my friend or my neighbor or my roommate or my spouse or my kids? How do I do this? In the same way that Jesus has done it for us. That Jesus is patient. That Jesus was kind. That Jesus was a truth teller. Think, think about the fact that Jesus walked around with with 12 guys for three years who just didn't get it, who were the worst friends and deserted him in his worst moment. What did Jesus do? He died for them. That's the type of friends we're called to be. And that's how the gospel shapes our relationships. It shapes the way that we work, that we see that Jesus worked hard. Jesus was a blue collar guy. He worked as a carpenter and he also rested on the Sabbath to be before the father. It also affects how we view the world socially and corporately. We care about racial justice because we believe every person's made in the image of God. And we believe that one day Jesus said he would bring a kingdom was full of righteousness and justice and equity. So we seek that as an implication of what Jesus has done for us. We seek to alleviate poverty and address that because Jesus said that he came to give good news to the poor. What would happen if if we as a church were a church that were shaped by what Jesus has done and sought to, were sought to live countercultural lives. Our neighbors and our neighborhoods would be blessed. 
We would work in a way that glorifies God. We would see an upward lift in our relationships because you love others better when you understand what it means to be loved. I'm fully convinced that we would change our neighborhood. We could change the world through Christians doing ordinary things shaped by the gospel. So how do we live that out? Well, lastly is it is as the local church. I love the way the Apostles' Creed phrases this. It says the communion of the saints. By the way, saint is any Christian. It's not like super Christians. It's not the saints are not the Navy SEALs of Christians. This is everybody, okay? You're, you are a saint if you're a follower of Jesus. But we live out this universal reality as, the, as, as God's people, as a local expression of the church, a people, a particular people in a particular place and time with a particular mission. And so every Christian needs a local church and every follower of Jesus needs to be committed to a particular local church because this is how God has ordained for us to grow. Uh, well, I pastored a church in, in downtown Birmingham and I met this guy and he was, he was kind of, he's kind of out there. He's kind of, he's kind of, you know, he just wanted to be friends with everybody. And, uh, and he said, you know, I'm a member of the church of Birmingham. I was like, well, where are you, where do you go? He said, I just kind of go everywhere. I'm like, well, you can't just go everywhere. You got to go somewhere. And he said, he, he said, he said, well, you know, I go to a Bible study here and I go to a prayer group here. And sometimes I worship here and sometimes I do this over there. And I said, okay, so what you're doing is you're not committing to a church. You're consuming from a church. You're taking from a church. It sounds super spiritual. It really does, but it's not. It's like saying, you know what? I, I'm committed to the game of baseball. So today I'm going to pull for the Red Sox and tomorrow I'm going to pull for the Yankees. Like, it's like, you got to be, you got to be committed. Now, look, I'm not saying it's wrong to go visit another, it's not wrong to do that, but to be, to say, I'm not going to commit anywhere. means I'm not committing my life to a group of people. What it's saying is this is all about me. The New Testament doesn't use the term membership. It doesn't use the word member, but it's clear from the scripture that there is a committed covenant relationship that underlies the letters that we read. In Acts chapter six, there are widows who are identified. That's the beginning of deacons who did mercy ministry. They had to know who those widows were. They weren't just faces in a crowd. They weren't people who were unknown. Someone knew the need of these women. Hebrews chapter 13, there's this call to submit to your leaders. Well, you got to know who your leaders are to, for who you're going to submit to. In the same way, as a pastor, I will be held accountable one day in heaven for how I pastor this congregation. So I need to know who I am accountable for. All the one another's we see in the New Testament are clearly done in the, in the context of committed relationship. The letters that we're reading were written to specific churches. And in verse three, we see this idea because Paul shifts his focus. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. In other words, he's taking these universal realities and he's applying it to their local context, to this local church family. He's like, you wanna see these, these universal realities of being God's people played out? Do it inside of a local church. You may love the idea of friendship, but it takes real friends to live out that ideal. The call for us is to live our personal faith in Jesus in light of this new family that God gives us. And so the local church is a call to humility. It's, it's a call for us to slow down. It's a call for us to stop and think about other people because it's not just about us. It's, it's not just about me or you and, and, our, and our plans and what's best for us and what benefits us, but it's taking the time to slow down and consider what other people are doing. 
It's part of that renewal. John Stott says a renewal, a renewed mind is a humble mind like Christ's. And we see this right away at the end of verse three, where it tells, it tells us to, to, he says, for everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Don't think too highly of yourself, but have a sober or accurate assessment of your life and how you're called to live. There are lots of different ways that we have an accurate assessment of how we're called to live as God's people. For some of us, we're just overly confident. We were like, man, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else. It's me and Jesus, ride or die. We've got this. For some of us, we, we, we think we're special. We think we're the exception. You know, I don't need this or I don't have to do this. I don't, I don't have to serve in that way. That doesn't apply to me. What Paul is trying to force us to do is to take our eyes off ourselves, a, a, a me-centeredness, kind of a me-ology and to put our eyes somewhere else. And he does so by saying that we have a measure of faith that God has assigned. He's saying, assess yourself according to this measure of faith. What is that standard? That standard is Jesus himself. See, what humbles you is seeing Jesus, seeing his perfection, seeing his death, his love, his dependency, his friendship, his example of what it looks like to love and care for other people because it's hard to be prideful when you look at Jesus. You know, if, if I, I'm an okay guitar player. Like, I mean, you'll never hear, see me up here playing. I'm like the scout team worship leader. Like everybody, there had to, everybody else had to be like stricken off the face of the earth for me to be able to come up here and play worship. So, so I'm humble when I hear Matt play guitar. Matt would be humbled if he heard Eric Clapton play guitar. In the very same way, when we look to Jesus, it humbles us. I want us to be a church that is all about the gospel forming us, not just personally, but together as a people. So as we close up, three, three ways that I wanna see the gospel shape us, what this is gonna look like. First thing is that every person matters. Every person in a local church matters. I believe the church is the greatest opportunity for us to live out the diversity that we have as a people in unity, not uniformity, but unity. F.F. Bruce says diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. It is, it is so in nature, it is equally so in grace, and nowhere more so than in the Christian community. It says in verse four, for as in one body, we have many members. We have many different people. And it says here that, that they don't have the same function. A healthy body has multiple functioning healthy body parts. And every part of that body matters. You know, I, the human body doesn't have 43 arms. It has arms and legs and fingers and toes and eyes and hair and skin and, and, and a skeletal structure and muscles. All of those are vital. And even the smallest part of that body matters. For, for example, have you ever broken your pinky toe? How hard is it to walk by breaking the smallest digit out of 20 on your body? In fact, doctors say that if you didn't have a pinky toe, it would throw your balance off completely. We need even that little pinky toe. Every person in the church matters, has value. And part of this is that there is only one you. You're like a snowflake. And I know that phrase has gotten, gotten thrown around, it's gotten weird, but you're like a fingerprint. There's only one you. There, there are people who are a part of this church, a part of this neighborhood that God put in place for you to reach, 
for you to minister to, for you to encourage, for you to love. And here's the reality. When we skip, when we don't show up, when we pull back, when we think about ourselves, we all miss out because every single person matters. Hebrews 10 challenges us. It says that the reason we should not forsake gathering together is not so we can hear a good sermon, not so we can have good worship music, not so we can eat the best Dunkin' Donuts in Boston, but so that we can serve and encourage one another. Do you come on Sundays to your community group, to a KSA hangout, to a, a birthday party, asking yourself the question, how can I serve and encourage the people that God puts before me today? We, we also, this is a place where multiple cultures can be valued, where people from every walk of life can be valued. Look, we all have blind spots. We all have cultural blind spots. I need you and you need me to help each other grow as we follow Jesus. So every person matters, but also every person is needed and needy. So every person is needed and needy. It says here in uh, verse five that we are members of one another, that we're interdependent. We need each other. The hand needs the fingers and the fingers need the hand. We're responsible for each other. When one person hurts, we all hurt. When one person celebrates, we all celebrate. When someone goes missing, we say, it's my responsibility to go find that person. Like Jesus went after the lost sheep because I love that person. I need that person. This is my brother or sister in Christ. That we're accountable to each other, that we don't live in silos, but we live interdependent lives with each other, that we depend on each other. Look, this church cannot go on on the gifts of one person. Now, I'm not just talking about what happens here on Sunday morning. I'm talking about the life of the church. I, I, I don't have enough in me to care for every single person in this church. I can't do it. I'm, I'm admitting my own weakness to you. We have to care for each other. We have to be, be there for each other, be dependent upon each other. But we need, we need to both be needed and also be needy. For some of us, it's really easy to be needed. Man, like I love being needed. I love serving other people. But the second we get needy, we hide. Like, I don't want anybody to see that I'm vulnerable. I don't want anybody to see that I'm weak. But are you making space in your life to let others in, to let them speak into your life, to let them challenge you, to let them see you when you're low, to let them see your house was an absolute wreck? See, this, to do that, it takes slowing down because we feel like we can run really fast on our own, but we need other people to run with us. Look, it's a lot easier to go to the grocery store by myself, but if I invite someone along to come with me, it may slow my day down a little bit, but I'm getting an in, invaluable opportunity to speak into somebody's life and for them to speak into mine. It takes intentionality. It takes an intertwining our lives with each other that your victories become my victories and your joys become my joys and your failures become my failures. Every person is needed and needs to be needy. And then lastly, every person serves. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We're called to use our gifts. And, and Paul lists off a, a litany of, li of gifts here. He talks about prophecy and teaching and uh, exhortation and um, you know, uh, you know, leading and giving money and, and, um, and, and doing acts of mercy. He lists off all of these lists, all these things. But before this, he says, whatever your gift is, use it. Why does he have to remind us to use our gifts? Because in the church, there are a lot of dormant, unused gifts. We often just don't use the gifts that God has given us. 
And there's lots of reasons we think this. We think, you know what? I'm just not needed. Somebody else will do it. I'm not going to go help with that because somebody else will step in and do it. It's not my responsibility. Secondly, we may just, no one's asked us and that, that can be on us. But recently I had somebody come to me and they said, hey, um, is there anything I could do around here? Like, I, I really want to serve. I really want to do more. And I'm like, yes, there is. We can, we can get you connected. Sometimes we think we need time off. Sometimes we think we're out of the habit. Sometimes, you know, we just have the wrong attitude or we see ways that need to be that need serving, but we just don't want to serve in that way. We're called to remember how Jesus came and served us, that he came not to be served, but to serve. As, as a young church, look, it takes all hands on deck and it takes everybody doing stuff that's not always their favorite thing to do. But here's what happens when everybody plays their part. It's encouraging. It lightens the load. It means, man, instead of having to do this every three weeks, I get to do it every five weeks. Like it lightens the load for us. And it's also how we grow closer, man. Like when we do things alongside each other, God somehow uses that to help us grow in our relationship with somebody. So you're carrying chairs inside and you're having a conversation that you probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Look, if you're not sure where to start, just, just jump in. In a, in a community group, we're a lot like, uh, we're a lot like golf buddies. Um, we all kind of do the same thing. We're all hitting the golf ball together. As time goes on, we're gonna be able to diversify a little more, but I challenge you, just step in, serve. And not just that, but at the end of verse eight, and I think this covers all the ways he's telling us to serve. He says, do it with cheerfulness. When we come to serving, do we do so with a sense of joy or do we tend to do it with a sense of dread? Let's serve with joy. A city in a hill, I want us to be a church that is shaped by the gospel, that we know who we are in Christ, that we live out this culture and it impacts the way that we live. And so this morning, I'm gonna ask you to make one of three commitments. In fact, there's that connection card on your seat. Feel free to just put it on there um, and we'll have a basket that goes around when we do our giving time. You can just drop that in there. If you're a guest and you already filled it out, just drop that in, in there as well. Um, I wanna ask you to make one of three commitments today. First would be to make a commitment to Jesus. If you've not yet trusted Jesus, I would, I would invite you to do so. Invite you to give your life to him, to say, you know, maybe you just, this morning for the first time you realize that Jesus gave his all for you and you're ready to give your life to him. We love to talk with you about that. Maybe you've been uh, kind of wrestling with this idea of following Jesus and you're like, man, I just wanna go public with my faith. That's baptism. We'd love to talk with you about being baptized. Maybe this morning you just realized I'm a follower of Jesus, but I've just kind of, I've just kind of been struggling to, and putting myself in the middle of my life. Recommit your life to Jesus. Secondly would be the church. Commit to the church, quit being a lone ranger. And you can mark this on your, on your card. You're like, I wanna get involved with a community group. I wanna find a place. I wanna learn more about Jesus and what it means to be the church. Just mark that on the card. Or just, if you don't see it, write it in. And lastly, to serve. We have lots of ways that you can serve here. You can serve with setup, serve with, with music. You can do hospitality and greet people. Whatever it is, it is, there is a way for you to serve. So I challenge you to mark on that card a place to serve. Here in a moment, that basket will go around as we uh, come to our giving time. But let's all remember what it means to be the church. And part of what we do as the church is we sing. As I said last week, um, I said that one of the evidences of the Spirit filling us is that we would sing. As God's people, we are going to sing. And we see this in the book of Revelation that at the very end, what are God's people doing? They're singing. They're shouting, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so this morning, let's, let's get a picture and a glimpse of what it's gonna be like for us in eternity as we sing to the Lord together. Let's pray.